0: good morning andrews let's give our praise team another hearty amen today thank you so much for your ministry and song and for warming our hearts to be able to receive the word of god i want you to know that i'm excited and elated to be here with you just walking the grounds for just a little bit last night and this morning has brought back great fondness and tremendous memories from my time here in the early 2000s. Before we get into the word, I just wanna just take a moment to say a word of thank you and have us affirm our seminary worship leadership team. Let's give Nishani and Dr. Williams and Mello and those that helped put today's gathering together a hearty amen. amen. We thank you so much for your leadership. We thank you for your direction, your hard work. I know you wanted at some point to revoke my invitation to come because it took me so long to get certain things in place. But I just had to get through a number of issues so I could be here this weekend. So I thank you for your patience. Um, I'm excited um, just for the opportunity to be able to share with you. Uh, But before we get into the word, I want to just give you this unsolicited piece of advice. How many of us are nearing the end of our time here at Andrews? All right. One of the things I wanna just say to you before we get into the word is don't rush out of here. Don't endure your time here. Enjoy your time here. And some of you won't say amen to this for about seven years. But I want you to be clear, your life will never be more simple than it is right now. I know that exegesis paper is hard, but it does not compare to calls at three in the morning, the endless streams of criticism, the rigors of moving consistently. There will come a dime, and you can't see that day today, where you will covet the simplicity of just being able to go to the calf and the food is already fixed, of knowing that there is no electric bill because you live in the dorm. And so I wanna encourage you to make sure that you make good use of your time here so that you wanna make sure that you manage your inner world well here. So that if you have, let me not say if you have issues, because you have issues, take the time to have those things addressed now because those things will cause you to unravel if they are not dealt with in the appropriate season. And so I think that our theme for this week, living a resilient life in a changing world, is very appropriate Because I think many of us are old enough to know that being a pastor does not make you exempt from trouble. In fact, pastoring, the only thing it makes you exempt from is comfort. It makes you exempt from ease. It makes you exempt from being wealthy. (laughs) And those things are providential so that you are battered by life just enough that you don't minister down. But you minister over and that your preaching won't just be theological and instructional. It'll be experiential. You will be preaching from a lived experience, not a vicarious experience. And so these things are necessary for the building of our faith. We want to jump into the word today. I want to invite you to go back with me to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter seven. We'll stand for the reading of the word today and we'll try to move through this in an expeditious fashion, Matthew chapter seven, and we'll begin at verse 15. When you get there, just say amen. Amen. Matthew chapter seven and verse 15, and I'll skip back and forth throughout the chapter a little bit. Matthew chapter seven and verse 15. Again, when you get there, just say, pastor, I'm here. All right, Matthew seven and verse 15, the Bible says, beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And he says, you will know them by their what? You'll know them by their what? You'll know those who belong to God by the fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears what? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by your, their fruit will you know them. Then he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who what? He who does the will of my father in heaven. And then I want to jump down to verse 24, which is where we will rest sermonically today. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and what? And acts on them or does them. I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And when the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall for it was founded on a rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and what? And does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came. And the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. But I want to reap emphasis one more time, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these words or sayings of mine, and what? Does them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Today, for just a little while, I want to talk to you under the subject, The Power is in the Doing. Let's pray together. Father, I ask, Lord, that in this little while that you would say much. Father, I pray that today's message would allow somebody to be more sternly cemented in their faith. So, Lord, I'm praying that faith would be multiplied exponentially as the word is taught. And so, Father, would you please hide me in the shadows of the cross that Jesus alone might be seen that Christ alone would be heard. And at the end of our time together, may Jesus alone be praised. We ask this in the name of him who is altogether lovely. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray it. Let God's people say together, amen. Amen. And amen, you may be seated. Again, just talking today under the subject, the power is in doing. Some of you may remember about 13 years ago There was a fitness craze that raced across the United States. Fitness guru Tony Horton came up with a 90 day muscle building fat burning program that he simply titled P90X. And and what made it different, at least in theory, is that it was holistic in nature so that you would get these exercise DVDs, you would get a fitness guide, you would become a member of a fitness community, you could go online and listen to these testimonies. And I convinced my wife that if she let me pay $200 for the program, that she would see a lean, ripped up version of her husband. Now, seminarians, I wanna be honest with you that after I ordered the program, I watched the videos very carefully. I listened to the testimonies repeatedly. I read the instructions with great intent, but I'll be honest with you, I came up a little short on the workouts themselves. And the strangest thing is, I didn't lose any weight by watching them exercise. Just having my name on the membership profited me nothing. Just reading the instruction gave me no benefit. I did not get any benefit because I did not actually do it. Now, the crazy thing is I saw what I was supposed to do. I read what I was supposed to do. I said what I was going to do, but there was no transformation because I didn't actually do it. And how many of us know that what's true in the world of fitness is also true in the world of worship? Uh, because the truth is, weekend after week, we come in and hear what we should do. We sing what we ought to do. We say what we're going to do, but the reason we remain unchanged is because we don't actually do it or put it into practice. So let me bring it back now to Matthew chapter 7. Here we find Jesus preaching what becomes known as the Sermon on the Mount. And even though this sermon is captured in about three chapters, Ellen White says that this sermon was the length of an entire day. In fact, she says that he preaches until the light of the sun wears out. And yet for the people, this message was like an oasis in the middle of the desert. They literally suppress their hunger because they don't want to miss a single syllable of the word that falls from the mouth of the master. And as we come to the end of chapter 7, we see Jesus beginning to make a distinction between multiple types of believers. First, he makes a distinction between those who cry, Lord, Lord, and those that do the Father's will. Then he creates a line of delineation between those who hear the word and those that put it into practice. And in summation, Jesus is teaching that there is no power in lip service saying what you're going to do there is no power in voyeuristic worship watching what ought to be done there is only benefit or emphasis in when you actually put it into practice and the reason Jesus knew this is he knows that one of the things we're good at is we are good at hearing and affirming truth but where we struggle is applying and implementing the truth In fact, is the reason that our lives spiritually are so dry and morose. It is not because there is a lack of information or instruction. The issue is that there is a lack of implementation in the life. And see, Jesus knew there would be a time where there would be a lot of amens in church, but very little action after the benediction. But there's got to come a time where our activity after church eclipses our enthusiasm while we're in the building. You might as well say amen today. In other words, friends, God is not a God that applies power to observation. Our God applies power to activity. Are you with me, church? In other words, what good is it to hear a message on forgiveness if you're going to hold a grudge against everyone that's harmed you? What, what good is it for us to have the message of the last days if we're going to act as if Jesus is not coming in our lifetime? What good is it for us to have the health message if we're going to hit Krispy Kreme on our way home from work every afternoon? What good is it to hear a message on family if you're gonna still be condescending to your spouse? And what I need somebody to know is that God doesn't apply power to information, God applies power to implementation or activity. In other words, I need you to get preachers as much power as God gives me to preach the word. You don't that's only 50% of the power applied. You don't tap into the other 50% until you go home and put it into practice. Are you hearing the word today? So God applies power to activity. In fact, let me say it this way: I remember my pastor in Huntsville, Alabama. But I had a member who was very ill, and she lived in Pulaski, Tennessee, which is about an hour away from where I live. And so I remember driving all the way up into the mountains to her home, and I go down a very dark and unpaved road to get to her home. And when I get there, I notice that all of the lights are out inside of the house, and there are no street lights on this very narrow and rural street. And I get a little nervous when I get out of the car because the grass comes all the way up to my knees, and I'm one of those brothers that has a bad relationship with snakes. Do I have at least one witness? in the chapel today, and, and so now there's about a 30-foot walk between my car and her home with grass that comes all the way up to my knees, and, and so now I'm, I'm in a conflict because I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do because I'm afraid. I'm the man of God, but I'm afraid to walk through this grass at night to get to her home, and so I called the house, but no one picks up, and so now I'm there vacillating in the front yard, and to what I'm going to do, and so eventually I man up because I drove an hour to get here, so I've gotta pray for somebody. Can I get a witness today? And so eventually, I begin just stepping gently through the grass, and what happens is when I get to the edge of the home, there is a light that comes on on the side of the house. When I begin to walk down the walkway, another light comes on the walkway. And then when I get on the porch, another light comes on the porch. And what becomes clear is that she has what you call a motion-detecting system. In other words a motion detector has a sensor that doesn't apply power until it detects activity in other words no power would be applied as long as I was wishing over by the car no power was gonna be applied until I start moving in a certain direction and how many of us know that God doesn't apply power to your good intentions to your wishes to your hopes But God doesn't apply power until you start moving in the area or direction of faith. Are you hearing the word today, saints? And so God wants us to function according to action and not word. Are you hearing me? And so the Bible says, go back to Matthew chapter 7, and I want us to look at verse 20. The Bible says, therefore, by their fruit will you what? Will you know them? Now, I've been talking for a moment about the need for us to implement the word or obey the word. But I want to be careful because I don't want to take us back to an old religious paradigm where we try to obey our way to salvation because we are saved by the amazing grace of Jesus alone. Can you say amen? But but I do want to say we ought not ever get to a place where our works or our obedience is taboo in the church. Are y'all with me? Yes. Now, now, even as we talk about this, I want you to notice something. Notice that when Jesus talks about our doing or our works, I want you to notice that he frames our works or our doing as fruit and not seed. Yes. Let, let, let me say it to you. Y'all know this side. Jesus frames our doing as fruit and not seed. In other words, our doing is the fruit that identifies the tree, not the seed that produces the tree. In other words, our works are not the seed that produce our salvation, our works are the fruit that identify us as being saved. In other words, my good deeds don't save me. They simply identify me as belonging to Jesus Christ. In other words, you've got to understand the purpose of fruit. The purpose of fruit is to give a spiritual identification. So so Jesus understood that most people would not be able to tell a tree by its leaves. Most people couldn't tell a tree by its root. Most laymen only identify a tree by the fruit that it bears. In other words, I am not a farmer. The only way I know an apple tree is when it has apples on it. The only way I know an orange tree is when it has oranges on it. The only way I know a pear tree is when it has pears on it. In other words, the only way I can identify the type of it is because of the fruit it bears. Because from a lay standpoint, all trees have leaves, they all have branches, they all have roots, but I can only tell its nature by the fruit that it bears. And what Jesus is doing is he's laying out a criteria by which men would be able to know which ones actually belong to him. In other words, he knew there would come a time where all believers would pretty much look the same. In other words, we all have church clothes, we all have Bibles in our hands, we all know the words to the hymns, but God said, you won't know mine by the songs they sing, by the clothes that they wear, by the universities they attend, or the classes they take. You'll know the ones that belong to me by the fruit that they bear. In other words, I need you to know that he is not giving a criteria by which we judge or assess one another's spirituality. He is laying this criteria out to the world so that they would not be deceived by the phony believers in the household of faith. He's saying don't judge it by how it looks. You've got to judge them by the fruit that they bear. Are you hearing me today? And see, one of the things I need you to know is that Jesus kind of lays this out in an agrarian concept. One of the things I need you to know is that whenever a tree bears fruit, nobody celebrates the tree. Whenever a tree bears fruit, nobody congratulates the tree. Uh, When a tree bears fruit, nobody gives props to the tree. They celebrate the farmer or the husbandman that, that planted it that pruned it, that watered it, the tree gets no glory for bearing fruit. Now the reason that is important is because, how many of us know that you didn't plant yourself? You didn't water yourself. You didn't dung yourself. That it is God that works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So that when you bear some spiritual fruit, you don't get to pat yourself on the back and say look at what I have done. Stop walking around saying I've got the victory when the truth is we've been given the victory, we share in the victory that Christ has won on our behalf. Are you hearing me today, saints? Now the other thing that this thing is showing us, friends, as Jesus puts it in the context of fruit, I need you to understand that the development of fruit is based upon connection and not effort. Okay, Andrews, have you ever seen an apple on a tree stressing and pressing and working hard to be an apple? Have you ever seen an orange worried and angry and anxious about being an orange? No, they don't stress or they work, all they do is remain connected to the branch, which is fed from the sap that comes from the roots. In other words, as long as it remains connected, its development is a byproduct of being in connection with the branch. Y'all didn't catch it. And see, how many of us know that our fruit development, it is not a byproduct of you being good. It's not a result of you working hard. It's not a result of you trying hard. But how many of us know that Jesus' statement is true, that if I abide in him, and he abides in me, he says the same is going to bring forth much fruit. So guess what? It's not about how hard I work. It's about how connected I am. And as long as you remain connected, I need you to know that you're going to bear much fruit. Are you hearing me? And see, one of the things this teaches us seminarians is that righteousness or wickedness they are all both byproducts of what you're connected to. See, see, one of the things about soil, which in Scripture is a symbol of the human heart, the one thing about soil is that it does not discriminate. So that the same soil that gives you a great orange tree is the same soil that'll produce a bitter herb. The same soil that will give you a tasty apple is the same soil that'll give you a nasty rutabaga. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? In other words, whatever is planted there, the soil is going to nurse and nourish and give you back a result, a reflection of whatever is planted there. Now the reason that is important, and I know you all are pastors, but not all of us are Christians. Come on and say amen. It is because one of the things that we have allowed to happen is there to be a faulty idea of what godliness looks like. Notice what Jesus says. He says, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Are y'all with me? A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And he lays some things out as an agricultural impossibility to foreshadow the truth of some spiritual impossibilities. And see, the problem is that there are a lot of us that have all bad fruit, but we still consider ourselves a good tree. And Jesus is saying that is an impossibility because you're going to be known by the fruit that you bear. Now, the reason, friends of mine, we live with so much conflict is because sometimes we try to plant seed that's not compatible in the same heart. Mm. Stay with me. Have you ever wondered why godliness feels so hard? Have you ever wondered why you are so inconsistent in your walk with God? Come on, tell the truth. I know you're in the seminary. Have you ever been in that space of life where you take one step forward— and two steps back. Have you ever been in that space where you're up on Sabbath, but you're in the valley on Tuesday? Have you ever been in that space where you have one victory that's followed by 17 defeats, where where you pray that prayer, Lord, if you get me out of it one more time, I'll never, ever do it again. And see, the thing I need us to understand, beloved, is that sometimes we introduce our own conflict. In other words, the reason it's so hard is because we try to sow spiritual seed and carnal seed in the same space. Uh, In other words, we we start the day before the throne, but we end the day watching Game of Thrones. Uh, We we start the day with Amazing Grace, but we end the day with Kendrick Lamar. Y'all might be quiet with me today. we start the day with living water, but we end the day with the tea of gossip. We, we, we start the day trying to be in the sun, but we end the day throwing shade, y'all mighty quiet, uh, in this seminary chapel with me today. And what I'm saying is, because we have conflicting, competing elements, planted in the same soul it's no wonder that I'm back and forth up and down and living with a tug of war inside of my own soul listen living there in Huntsville I once passed to a farmer who said one of the things pastor I'll never do is he says I'll never plant heirloom or natural corn seeds too close to the genetically modified corn seeds And he says, the reason I'll never plant them too close is because of what they call cross-pollinization. He says, if the pollen from the genetically modified seeds gets on the natural corn seed, he says the natural seed will become converted. And it'll take on the texture and the taste of the genetically modified seed. He says, I'll never plant melons and cucumbers too close together because if they cross-pollinate and the pollen from the melon, uh, cucumbers gets on the melon, it'll convert the melon seeds and they'll take on the color and the texture and the taste of the cucumbers. And I guess what I'm saying is that many of us have been born of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God, but we're planting the things of this earth and the seed of the Spirit. It's being converted through spiritual cross-pollinization. And even though the seed has been planted, it's been converted by the things of this life. So even though we were born of the Spirit, we taste like the world. We act like the world. We are reflecting the world because we've allowed some things that are competing to function in the same space of the heart. Are you hearing me today, saints? So the word says to us here in verse number 24, he says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Now, Jesus, friends of mine, makes a clear distinction between a hearer and a doer. And I need you to know the way he makes this distinction is in the context of results. He says, those who hear the word and put it into practice... I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house not upon the surface of the beach, but he digs down beneath the surface until he strikes bedrock. And he does not make his investments in finishes or in the exterior. He makes his investment in the infrastructure so much so that when the rain falls and the wind begins to blow and the rains begin to fall, the house is able to stand because it is founded on a rock. But he says, those that just hear the word, and study the word and write papers about the word and exegete the word and preach the word, but they don't put it into practice. I will liken him to a foolish builder who puts all of his investments not in infrastructure, but in finishes. So they make their investment in the right uh, kind of suit and they make their investments in the right type of tie and they make their investment in the right type of satchel and they make their investment in the right type of business card and they make their investment in the right type of nameplate on their desk. They make their investment in finishes. Not in infrastructure, but there is going to come a day for that person that has never allowed themselves to be built on the rock where the rain is going to fall. The wind is going to blow. The streams are going to rise. And the Bible says that those that are not founded on the rock will fall. And the Bible says great is the fall. Now I need you to understand something, friends of mine, that those who build on the rock go through the same storm as those who build on the sand in other words i need you to get that building on the rock did not cause the storm to pass by in other words those who build on the rock go through the same season of testing as those who build on the sand so that building on the rock does not make you exempt from the storm It simply strengthens you to be able to endure the storm. And see, I need y'all to understand something about the purpose of trials. See, too often we say that trials come to build character. But the truth is that trials, what they actually do is they reveal character. So so that both uh, homes go through the same storm. But the thing I want to say, three brief points and I'm done. Neither your prosperity or your adversity Reveal your standing in God. Are you with me? So go with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Can, can we get, stay in the book for just a quick moment? Matthew 5 and verse number 45. Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 45. When you get there just say amen? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. Jesus says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Who makes his son to rise on the evil and on the what? Good. And he sends rain on the just and on the what? Amen. Unjust. I need you to get that into every life, no matter how well lived, that there's going to be sunshine on the evil and on the good, and it's going to rain on the just and on the what? Amen. Go with me in your Bibles to Psalm 34, the 34th division of the Psalms. And I want you to look at something that is critical, friends of mine. Psalms chapter 34. And verse number 18, Psalm 34 and verse 18, when you get there, say amen. amen. It says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves such as have a contrite spirit. Watch this, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him from them all. In other words, friends, where in the scriptures does it teach that if I'm righteous, everything is going to work out in a comfortable and neat and pristine fashion? In fact, the Bible gives a very different description of what the life of the righteous is going to look like. In fact, it says not occasionally, not every now and then, but it says many are the afflictions of the righteous— But the Lord is going to deliver them from them all. And the thing I want to say to somebody today is to know that God loves you as much when it's raining outside as he does when the weather is perfect or ideal in your life. See, too often we make the mistake of trying to measure God's love through circumstance and not through connection. But what I want somebody to know, as long as you are connected, it doesn't really matter what the circumstance is, because circumstances come and they go. They are here today and gone tomorrow, but your connection with the Lord ought to endure any circumstance that you face. And part of this, friends of mine, is a call away from that church judginess, where we try to judge people's righteousness by the things that they go through. See, how many of us know that all of Job's friends are not dead? But there are some that still make assessments of somebody's spiritual life based upon the battery of adversities that they may go through in a particular season. In other words, that there are some of us that still are in a works oriented paradigm that believe that all bad fortune is somehow earned or deserved or the result of some type of secret sin. But how many of us know that godly people get COVID? Godly people contract cancer. Godly people lose jobs. Godly people get divorced. Godly people raise stupid kids. Godly people get in car accidents. Godly people get slandered. Godly people get talked about. Where did it say all who live godly shall have harvest, breakthrough, and deliverance? The Bible says all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Remember, Jesus says in this world you shall have tribulation, but fear not, for I have overcome the world." And what I have learned in this pastoring journey, friends, is that when you are in adversity, you don't need to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out the why of the trouble. Uh, In other words, even if God told you why you had trouble, it wouldn't make you feel any better. In other words, your deliverance is not in the why. Your deliverance is in the who that is able to keep and sustain you in all adversity. Are you with me? Listen, let me say this. I remember growing up in Florida, I would go over to my auntie's house where at her apartment complex. They had a pool, and we would spend all summer long in the pools, just being inside the water all day and all afternoon. And I remember one day, I was, you know, before I had really learned how to swim well, I don't know if some of y'all are old enough to remember the old school pools, before they had like the gradual slope into the deep end. Those older pool pools would have just a big step, and you would go from being in five feet. You would step off the block and be in 12 foot of water just like that. And I remember I was right there on the edge of the five-foot line, I was showing off with some of my friends, and maybe there was a girl on the side, and I got a little too cute. And before I knew it, I was all the way over in the 12-foot part of the water. Now, I need you to understand that now as I'm sinking, I'm just like, man, doing just enough dog paddling to keep my head above water. Now, I need you to understand that as I'm drowning, I don't stop and ask myself, why am I drowning? I don't stop and ask why are my lungs filling up with water? I don't stop and ask why am I not gonna make it to the seventh grade? I don't stop and ask why in the midst of trouble. What I do is I just keep my head above water just enough to look up to the lifeguard who is able to come and rescue me in the midst of my adversity. And what I'm saying is you've gotta stop asking why and just learn how to look up to the hills From whence cometh your help and realize that your help and my help and our help, it all comes from the Lord. Are you hearing me today? Second thing this teaches us friends of mine is that obedience, friends, doesn't make you storm free. Obedience makes you storm proof. See, the problem is, too often, Dr. David, we're praying to be storm-free. But that's not God's objective for you. God wants to grow you to be storm-proof. See, the reason we have to pray to be storm-free is because we are living in such narrow spiritual margins that everything has to go perfect in order for us to abide But God is trying to grow you to a place where you have such spiritual infrastructure that you can abide no matter what the circumstance is that prevails in your life. And let me just be clear when I say this, that none of us are so righteous that we covet storms. There are none of us, man, that seek out storms. But at the same time, you ought to have enough infrastructure to where you're not running from storms. You're not hiding from them because you know that God has put enough inside of you to handle the storms when they come. And the other thing this teaches us, friends of mine, is that not all storms are created equal. What this parable is teaching is talking about when life circumstances converge at the same time yeah, yeah, yeah. notice what happens the house would be okay if it was just rain the house would be okay if it was just a windy day the house probably survives if it's just a little floody. But what happens is all of the elements conspire. There is a confluence of events that comes upon the house at the same time, and one literally feeds into the next so that the rain falls, which causes the stream to rise, which actually adds force to the wind when it blows upon the house. In other words, it could handle one adversity. But man, when all of the adversities of of nature conspire at the same time, it reveals the nature of where and how the house was built and established. And how many of us know, friends, that life would be perfect if you only had one trial in a season of life? But is there anybody older than 12 that knows that the enemy does, is not considerate? He's not waiting to let you get your balance. He is not trying to be a convenient enemy of your souls. In other words, he is not just going to send one adversity, but there are going to be times where multiple adversities come upon us in one season of life. I'm talking about a season almost like the one we've been in the last two years, where there is a pandemic in the same time of racial unrest, in the same time where Russia tries to invade Ukraine. I'm talking about when multiple things happen at the same time. I'm talking about that season academically where your term paper is due the same time of your Hebrew final, uh, in the same season where your preaching sermon is about to be due, at the same time where your conference is threatening not to stop sponsoring you. I'm talking about when multiple things happen at the same time. I'm talking, married folk, about that season when your spouse is acting weird. At the same time, your boss gives you a hard time. At the same time, your parent begins to get sick. While in the same season, your kids are causing you all types of trouble. It would be nice if they were spread out evenly in life. But it rains, and the wind blows, the flood rises. All in the same night and notice that the solution for all of those things is one thing a firm foundation in other words seminarians you would think that if you have three different elements that there would be three different solutions but the same solution applies for rain for wind for flood to make sure you are established on a firm foundation because a foundation helps you to manage no matter what the elements may wind up being. What do you mean, Pastor? So, so, so let me just say this, because see, everything is about the foundation upon which your life is built. And let me just say this, beloved, do not build your life on reputation. Young pastors, do not build your ministry on social media likes and mentions. Because I need you to know as quickly as they can like you, they can unlike you. As quickly as they mention you well, they will mention you in poor terms shortly thereafter. In other words, don't build your life on that which can be taken away. So you want to build on a firm foundation. It's, it's crazy. I've been married now. will be 19 years in November. And, and one of the ways I stay married is every now and then I sit down with my wife and voluntarily watch a little HGTV. Can I get a witness help? You got to do it. And, and it's funny because like one of the things that happens is we love to watch like these, David, these remodeling shows and, and we love to watch it. I don't know why because I'm not about to do any of that stuff. Like <laughs> I'm a hearer of the word, but, uh, <laughs> but I love watching them do it, right? So when they, when they get ready to go in and remodel the house before they start tearing down walls and stuff, one of the first things that they're going to do is they're going to identify what they call the load bearing wall. And one of the ways you know it's the load-bearing wall is they will have beams, metal or wood, that go from the ceiling all the way down into the foundation. Now, actually, from an engineering standpoint, I'm told that it's actually wrong to refer to it as the load-bearing wall. In fact, from an engineering standpoint, the wall doesn't bear the load. What it actually does is it shifts the load of the house to the foundation, which is able to actually bear or handle the load. In other words, it does not bear the load, it simply transfers the load to the foundation which is able to handle all of the weight of the house. Now, why is that important? It's because you thought your job was to bear the load. No, pastor, your job is not to bear the load. Your job is to shift the load and transfer it to the foundation which is the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you thought you had to be strong for everybody else. You thought you had to be there for everybody else. You thought you had to add the answers for everybody else. But no, your job is to shift the load to the foundation. You are to give it to the stone that the builders rejected, the one that has become the chief cornerstone. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Are you hearing me today? Last thing you got to do is I get ready to take my seat, is this, is you got to learn how to redefine victory. See, I need you to understand what the victory for the wise builder is. The victory for the wise builder is not that he was storm free. It's not that he was cloud free. The victory for the wise builder is not that he was rain free. The victory for the wise builder was not that he had great weather all the time. Do you realize the the victory for the Wise Builder was this? Is that once the rain ceased, and the clouds rolled into remission, and the storm of that day passed, you realize that the Wise Builder rejoiced simply when he looked up and the house was still standing. You see, the victory for the Wise Builder was not in what he avoided. The victory is in what the house survived. See, I need us to understand that the witness of faith is not in what you avoid. See, God doesn't get any glory if you avoid everything. God is not honored if everything bypasses you. God is not honored if God blocks every hardship and every adversity. But the witness of the believer is when life hits you with a series of combinations and the enemy hits you with everything, including the kitchen sink. But after the storm has eroded, you are able to stand with an immovable, non-negotiable faith. And you can say, I'm still standing by the grace of the Almighty God. In other words, your victory is not that you're storm free, but your victory, seminarians, is that you're still standing. Maybe you failed a class or two, but guess what, you're still standing. Maybe you've gone through a divorce, but you're still standing. Maybe you've lost a child in miscarriage, but you're still standing. Maybe a parent has fallen asleep, but you're still standing. Maybe a conference has yet to sponsor you, but you're still standing. Maybe your family can't get pregnant, but you're still standing. Maybe you're in financial hardship, but you're still standing. Maybe some have talked about you, but you're still standing. Maybe there's been persecution, but you're still standing. Maybe some churches wanted you gone, but. you're still standing and maybe you're saying pastor i'm not still standing but you can say i've heard the word and i'm getting back up again by the grace and the might of the almighty god i'm gonna live with resilience i'm gonna live with an abiding faith i'm not going back the way that i came Nobody ever told me that the road would be easy, but is there anybody that knows he has brought you too far to leave you now? And I just need to know, do I have at least five folk in the room who are saying, "Come hell or high water, Come good day or bad day. I refuse to quit. I refuse to give up. I refuse to retreat. I'm going to stand on the rock that is higher than I. I am standing on the rock. That is Christ Jesus.